0: Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert, frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Welcome to Generally Speaking. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about sentencing. Sentencing is a bit different than a lot of the things we have talked about on this podcast because usually things in the law are pretty concrete and well-defined. But sentencing is much more complex, both on the front and back ends. You're going to learn today about how complicated our sentencing grid is from a prosecutor's perspective and a judge's perspective. And then you're also going to learn about how sentencing often changes after we send a defendant to the Tennessee Department of Corrections. Because even though we've picked a sentence and a sentencing time, sometimes TDOC changes that sentence based on good time credits or safety vows. But we're going to get into all of that today with our two special guests. First, we have Takesha Fitzgerald. She is known lovingly around the office as TK. She began prosecuting cases in Knox County as soon as she graduated from law school back in 1998, and her career has focused mostly on violent crimes. She is the career criminal and gang unit team leader currently. Welcome this morning, TK. Thank you. We also have Patty Bordwine, who is our victim witness coordinator in the office. Patty joined the office in 2006 after a career with several agencies assisting victims of domestic violence and sex crimes. She oversees our office's Victim Witness Assistance Program, and she does a fine job at it. So thank you both for being here this morning. Thank you. All right, let's dive right in with our direct examination. Let's talk about background and experience. Let's start with you, Patty. Every DA's office in the state has a Victim Witness Coordinator. Generally speaking, of course... Can you explain to our listeners what victim witness coordinators do? Certainly. Generally speaking, victim witness coordinators are responsible
1: for providing information, assistance, and support to
0: victims of crime throughout the prosecution process. And why is it important that we do that in the criminal justice system? Why do we have professionals that do this?
1: Well, it's the right thing to do. And in a more bottom-line analysis, the system is dependent upon crime victims to seek justice and safety for the community. So any effort that the system can make to increase participation and decrease re-victimization or confusion associated with participating in the system serves everything.
0: Certainly true. And we typically meet people during the worst moments of their lives. On the subject of sentencing, let's talk about why it's important for us to acknowledge a victim's experiences and their perspectives.
1: Well, it's important because they're the human equation of the impact of the crimes that the system is dealing with in a day-to-day basis. The law is clear that victims have a right to be heard at that stage and to speak directly to the court about their definition of justice their own personal definition of how the crime has impacted them. And it's also important for all of us in the system to hear what they have to say so that we don't get disconnected from the fact that we're dealing with human beings and things that have happened directly to them, and we should listen.
0: Certainly we should as prosecutors. Victim's perspective is vitally important, as is the prosecutor's perspective. And so, TK, you're going to be able to help us with the prosecutor's perspective of sentencing. Let's start by talking about the foundation needed to understand how sentencing works. Please explain for our listeners who's responsible for deciding what a sentence is after a conviction.
2: All right. So, generally speaking, if the uh, person is convicted at trial... So we don't have an agreement as to the sentence or to the manner of service. Then the judge is going to be the one who determines what the sentence is and the length of sentence. The judge is going to be limited as to what he or she can consider based upon what the statute provides for. And the statutes, of course, are passed by the General Assembly.
0: Legislatures basically come up with the sentencing guidelines and then the judges enforce the law based upon those guidelines.
2: Yes. And so at the sentencing hearings, the state and the defense, we can both introduce proof, but the proof that either side can introduce is going to be limited by the statutes.
0: As we dive into this, let's talk about misdemeanors and felonies, okay, and how sentencing works for each of those classes.
2: So with misdemeanors, it's a little bit more liberal as to the factors that the judge can consider because misdemeanors are a shorter sentence. So when we're dealing with misdemeanors, we're dealing with something less than a year. The Class C misdemeanor, we're talking about 30 days. With the Class B misdemeanor, we're talking about six months. And then a Class A misdemeanor, we're talking about 11 months, 29 days. And so the judge has more options in whether or not he or she wants to sentence the defendant to serve the 11 months, 29 days. When we're talking about felonies, we've got a number of statutes that the court has to consider before they can impose a sentence of incarceration. It's going to depend upon their prior criminal history, their prior history involving felony convictions, the level of those felony convictions, the amount of damage done or the amount of property stolen from the person. There's going to be more factors that the judge is going to have to consider in sentencing a felony versus a misdemeanor.
0: And getting into that felony sentencing, you're really beginning to get into our sentencing grid. What we refer to as our sentencing grid. And for our listeners, the sentencing grid looks a lot like a periodic table. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to describe it, really. And there are different things that we consider on that grid. Can you talk about the three things that go together to make up that sentencing grid that we all are bound by?
2: The best way to describe it is going to be, vertically speaking, it's going to be the level of the felony that the person is convicted of horizontally speaking, it's going to be the number of prior felony convictions that a person has. However, the other thing, it's not just the prior number of prior felony convictions, it's also going to be the level of those prior felony convictions. And I know that seems extremely confusing. If I can give an example, let's say you have a situation where a defendant goes to a, a car lot and steals a $100,000 car and the person gets caught. And the person has no prior criminal history, no prior felony convictions at all. Well, under that sentencing grid, that person is convicted of a class B as in boy felony conviction. And that person is facing eight to 12 years because that person's a range of one offender. Uh, so that person will most likely walk out of court with eight years probation. However, let's say the next day, some other person goes to that exact same car lot. And this time, this person steals a $3,000 car. And this person gets caught and this person has six prior felony convictions. Well, that person is going to walk out of court into TDOC and have to serve a 12-year sentence at 60%. That person is not eligible for probation. And the reason that is is because of the sentencing grid that you're speaking about. The General Assembly has set forth all the factors to be considered before the judge can sentence somebody to TDOC.
0: That, that's extremely confusing. <laughs> that's, it is. I think that's probably extremely confusing to, to, for our listeners to hear. But basically, I think what we're saying is it depends on how serious your crime is, and it depends on what your criminal history is. Yes. If you're just boiling it down to the basics. Yes. And there's a lot of nuance in there and, and a lot of tweaking, but that's the basics. Yes. Okay. When we do this sentencing, not everyone understands when sentencing actually happens in the process. So, can you talk about when sentencing happens in relation to a trial?
2: Sure. So, after you go to trial and after the person is found guilty, we will reset the case 45 days. And so, in that 45-day period, the judge has ordered a pre-sentence report to be prepared by the probation office, by TDOC. Just because the probation office is preparing the report, it doesn't mean the person is eligible for probation. And so then we will have that sentencing hearing approximately 45 days after the person is found guilty.
0: Okay. And the sentencing hearing, Patty, is where you are talking about victims being able to play a part in that. Yes. yes. And victim witness coordinators in our office are always with those victims at that stage, correct? Correct. Once we get to this basic sentencing that we've laid out, let's talk about the f- First kind of complicator, and that would be enhancements. Explain to our listeners, once we get to this point, what enhancements do to this whole calculation.
2: So, going back to that sentencing grid you were talking about, the sentencing grid basically sets for a range of punishment a person can be facing if convicted of this offense. And so, as we're saying, on a B felony, they're going to be facing anywhere from 8 to 30 years as a range 1, range 2, range 3, or career offender under 4035-114, the legislature has set forth different enhancement factors that the court can consider in increasing that sentence within the range. And so a lot of times, like at trial, the victims or witnesses, there will be information that they would want us to put in front of the jury. But we're saying that, you know, we can't introduce this information in front of the jury because it's not relevant as to their guilt. It is relevant as to the sentencing. And so some of the factors that we can introduce at a sentencing hearing would be the prior criminal history Their prior history of violating probation or violating parole, that's relevant. Whether or not they are the leader of an offense, that's relevant. Their juvenile history actually can play a part in a sentencing history, or if they were like on bond or on parole at the time they committed this crime. Those are some of the factors that the judge can consider.
0: When we as the state put on those enhancement factors, we're asking the judge to increase the sentence.
2: We're saying, Judge, based upon these factors, we believe the defendant should be sentenced to more than the minimum. And we believe if there are any mitigating factors, we believe that these enhancement factors so outweigh the mitigating factors that the sentence should be above the minimum.
0: And speaking of mitigating factors, explain to our listeners how mitigating factors would be brought up and who brings those up.
2: The defense attorney will bring forth any mitigating factors that they believe would justify having the defendant to serve the minimum sentence. And so the mitigating factors would be something to the effect of nobody was injured in this case. The defendant has some type of illness that doesn't qualify as a defense to the crimes like doesn't like a a complete mental illness. That would mean that he's not guilty, but some type of illness as to justify reducing the sentence.
0: And when we talk about enhancing and mitigating, let our listeners know whether or not that allows the judge to go completely off the grid or whether we're talking about the judge still staying on that grid, but moving around on that grid.
2: Right. So the judge has to stay within that grid. Now, if it's a situation where you've got multiple felony convictions, we can ask the judge to run sentences consecutive to each other. But still, when we're talking about the individual sentences, the individual sentences must stay within the confines of that grid.
0: All right, let's shift gears just a little bit to something else that's confusing, and that's plea agreements. And plea agreements are so confusing, they could be their own podcast, but let's talk about plea agreements in relation to sentencing. And let's talk about how sentencing works in a plea agreement.
2: A plea agreement is going to be an agreement that you have your prosecutor, your defense attorney, your victim, witness, the defendant, and basically you talk to everybody and everyone comes up with an either an agreed-upon The fact that the defendant is agreeing to plead guilty to some offense, that's one thing. The next question is, sometimes a plea agreement will also entail the defendant agreeing to a sentence, and then thirdly, agreeing to a manner of service. There's three questions. Are they guilty? What are they guilty of? What's the sentence that they are agreeing to? And then how are they going to serve that sentence? Whether or not it's going to be on probation or whether or not it's going to be incarceration. And so if you have a plea agreement, you can resolve all three of those things or you can just resolve one or two of them. But that's something that we're definitely going to get with Patty and the other victim's coordinator so that we can involve the victims and witnesses in that decision.
0: I'm glad you brought Patty back in here because this is confusing. I mean, sentencing is extremely confusing. We're talking about a grid. We're talking about calculations. We're talking about enhancements, mitigators. All of that is a lot. For a victim to hear. I mean, those are not words that are used in everyday language. Patty, can you talk to how a lot of times a victim witness coordinator will be in the room with the attorney and the family going through all of this discussion, yet it's the victim witness coordinator who will have to circle back several times with his family to actually help them understand the things that just come so naturally to TK when, when she's rolling it out. But it's the victim witness coordinator who really spends time explaining A lot of things to the family. Can you talk to that?
1: Well, that's very well said. And yes, we're also aware that we're talking about such complex and new information for most of the people that we serve that it would be unrealistic of us to expect that we could just have a lawyer come in and ramble off everything and then there'd be comprehension. So we try to help folks integrate over time, just about everything that's happening with the system. And oftentimes there's, because trauma and anxiety is heightened, people sometimes forget what we tell them. And so an important role for the victim witness coordinators is to be in a position to reemphasize and go back over the information that our lawyers have provided so that it's meaningful and understood.
0: And sometimes that entails just breaking it down into common language. Being able to give definitions of some of the terms that lawyers throw around.
2: If I can give an example. So we had this case. I want to talk about like going back to plea bargaining. So we had this case where this defendant had stabbed her in the chest. He was willing to plead guilty. So he was charged with one count of attempted murder because he did stab her in the chest. And he had taken some money from her. Um, And so he was also charged with a specially aggravated robbery. Well, at the time, uh, this took place a couple of years ago when the, the release percentage for attempted murder was like at 30 percent. But the release percentage for especially aggravated robbery was 100 percent. And so he is saying he's willing to plead guilty. My thinking was as long as he's willing to plead guilty, the especially ag- aggravated robbery, I'm fine with that because that's going to give me 15 to 25 years at 100 percent as opposed to the attempted murder, which is 15 to 25 years at 30 percent. And so we relied very heavily with victim and his coordinators to explain that percentage, that breakdown to the victim, because the victim is like, he stabbed me in the chest. You know, that's, that's attempted murder. Yes, it is. However, we want the especially aggravated robbery because that means that he's not going to get out.
0: Right. That's a perfect example of how a lawyer, a prosecutor looks at that sentencing grid and a layperson looks at terminology. Now, attempted murder sounds a lot worse than... A robbery? What? Yes. So that's where the patties of the world come in and <laughs> right. fix it all.
1: Right. It's also important to acknowledge that sometimes I think we generalize what victims' perspective or wishes are. And many times they're really pushing us and our prosecutors to get everything and more in terms of the punishment. But that's not always the case. And Tennessee allows a crime victim to speak directly to the sentencing judge regardless of their posture and whether or not they're in agreement with our prosecutor and our legal analysis. And we do see, on occasion, folks who come in and ask for leniency from the courts. We explain to victims that that is what your right to speak at the sentencing hearing is all about. But it's important to note, even when they disagree with us, they get to go on record with what they want to see the outcome be. Certainly important.
0: Okay, let's pivot one more time and let's talk about the death penalty in relation to sentencing. And of course, the death penalty could be its own podcast as well. But let's break it down and just talk about the three potential sentences, life, life without, and the death penalty.
2: That's only going to apply to our first three murder charges. And so what we have to do, there's a statute. As is true with everything. There's a statute that controls whether or not we can seek a death penalty or life without parole. So if we don't seek either one, then when they are convicted of first-degree murder, their sentence will be life with the possibility of parole, which still means 51 years. In order to put down a notice for a death penalty or life without parole, we've got to be able to show that there are enhancement factors that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And so we've got to prove those enhancement factors to a jury, and those enhancement factors have to outweigh any mitigating factors. And so what are those enhancement factors? Those enhancement factors would include if the murder is heinous, atrocious, or cruel, or if the murder was committed uh, so that, that they have murdering a like a witness to a crime, uh, if the person has prior crimes of violence, those are some of the, the enhancement factors um, that we have used before. When we're talking about whether or not those enhancement factors outweigh the mitigating factors, we're not talking about the number. We have to prove these to the jury, and then we're asking the jury to put a lot of weight on these enhancement factors in ruling that these enhancement factors outweigh whatever mitigating factors that a person may have.
0: Okay, two things you said in that response that we probably need to drill down a little bit on. And the first thing you said is life, and life means 51 years. So to a layperson, they may be thinking life means 51 years. Why does life not mean life? Can you explain to them how life really is 60 and there's a percentage? And how do we get to, why does life mean 51 years in Tennessee?
2: So it gets back to the sentencing grid that you were talking about. The top sentence that we have in the sentencing grid is 60 years. However, you are eligible, as, as you were mentioning before, you're eligible for a good time credit, and that good time credit is 15%, basically, of the sentence. And so 15% is basically nine years off of the 60 years, and that's how you get to the 51 years. Life without means exactly that. Life without, you're in there until you die. And then the death penalty, you're in there until.
0: The death penalty is imposed. Okay. One other thing you said that I wanted to touch on briefly is you started talking about the jury because sentencing in these cases is a little bit different. We've told our listeners that the judge is who imposes sentences, but in this particular instance, we're all of a sudden switching to the jury. So explain that to our listeners.
2: This is the thing, the death-only cases and life without parole, uh, we've got to prove these uh, factors to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. They've got to find that these factors outweigh the mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. And so then they've got to list on the judgment form the factors that they have found, and then they've got to sign that they have found that we have proven them beyond a reasonable doubt and they outweigh mitigating factors. And so then once they do that, then they're, they're the ones who have to make the decision of whether or not it's life without parole or the death penalty. And then once they make that judgment, that is their decision, but we still have to get the uh, judge to approve it to impose uh, either of those sentences. So it is, you're absolutely right. It's different from the murder sentencing for life without parole or the death penalty is different from sentencing a career offender on a theft case. A career offender on a theft case, the judge is going to be the one who imposes the sentence.
0: Obviously, victims of crime and families of victims go through quite a bit when they're thrown into this criminal justice system of ours. So as a victim witness coordinator, Patty, what's the most frustrating and confusing part of sentencing for victims and victims' loved ones? I guess
1: one of the most frustrating things in my view is that we're not able to give them concrete answers to some of the very basic questions. How long when is this over? Is it really over? And that plays into what I call indirect revictimization. We've suspended by virtue of the prosecution process, we suspend healing and recovery and grief for crime victims, we're unable to give them what folks in crisis most need, which is preparation for the future. What's gonna happen? So when we get to the end, we need to remain honest and not be concrete in our answers, but also keep in mind that there's something to be said for closure, for some sort of end the process. That's what seems to become a consistent theme for victims post-conviction is that despite our efforts to prepare them otherwise, there's an expectation that, oh, this will be the day that it's over. It is not oftentimes. It's a long haul. It's frustrating and it creates an extra set of
0: recovery and healing for victims. Two things that I noticed in that First, one of the things that you said that victims really want to know is what's going to happen. TK, that brings us back around to truth and sentencing. So when a family of Patties comes and says, what is going to happen? And you tell that family, well, this particular individual is going to serve eight years in the penitentiary. Is there true truth in you saying this defendant is going to serve eight years in the penitentiary?
2: Generally speaking, no.
0: And explain to our listeners why that is true.
2: Because going back to that sentencing grid, and there are some other statutes as well, but the sentencing grid basically tells us when the person is eligible for parole. Okay, so you're saying, all right, state, you told me this person has an eight-year sentence, he's a range one offender, he's going to the penitentiary, and so his sentence is eight years at 30%. Well, and so that means he's going to have to serve 2.4 years in the penitentiary. No, and that's because there are credits that defendants can earn while in the penitentiary that can act to reduce their sentence. And so some of those credits be a good time credit. There's also different programs that defendants can be a part of in order to have their sentences reduced. Now, that's when we're talking about uh, certain crimes. There are other crimes that are listed in another portion of the uh, of the statute. That's going to be 4035-501, and in that section... There are sentences that are listed that are actually 100% sentences, 85% sentences, 70% sentences, and 65% sentences. And so it's going to depend upon that category of offenses as to whether or not that qualifies for the quote-unquote truth in sentencing. And it's still not. I mean, there's still very few sentences that are actually 100% sentences. So, like, let's say an ag robbery, an ag robbery at 85%. Well, it's still not 85% because you still can qualify for up to 15% good time credit and get it down to
0: 70%. So basically what you've just told our listeners is, even though we work on this two-sided grid based upon how serious the crime is and how many priors you have, that gives you a number of years you're going to the penitentiary, but you've just interjected that that number of years really doesn't equal that number of years. It has a service percentage. What is a service percentage before eligibility for parole?
2: So the service percentage, that is the time that you are able to go before the parole board in order for your sentence to be reviewed to see whether or not you can come out of the penitentiary and serve the balance of your sentence on parole. And so even though I'm telling you that range one offender is 30 percent, well, you're not going to be held until 30 percent time because of your sentencing credits, as well as there's also something called safety valve program, where it's my understanding this program was passed in order to reduce prison populations. And so, you know, let's say that you're eligible for parole, you go before the parole board after you serve 20% of your sentence. Well, all that means is that you're then released from TDOC if you make parole and you're on parole. And so that's the balance of your eight-year sentence. So let's say that you're going to serve six years on parole. And let's say this person is serving six years on parole and three years into their parole, they violate I know you're thinking that that means they're going to have to go back to the penitentiary and finish serving the rest of that eight years. That is not how it works. Depending upon what the violation is, they may have to go in and serve a year or a few months. Depending upon the violation, they may get credit for the time that they were out here on the street. But it has not been my experience at all that they're going to go back and actually serve all of that eight years day for day.
0: Lots and lots of ways sentences change throughout the process. Which brings us back to what you said, Patty, that families want to know what's going to happen and that families also need to know that sentencing is not when this is over. This is a long, long process. Families often have to deal with the appeals process and parole hearings, which is what TK's been talking about. So can you talk to really how surprising that is to victims and going through the parole process, how... Draining is that for them? Well, it's very
1: draining, and I hope it's not a surprise. I hope we have prepared them throughout for the next stages and steps that are involved. But in our state, it seems that there's a pattern of even for hardened violent criminals, even though it would be unrealistic, their first parole hearing is set sometimes within 18 to 24 months after the person has been convicted. And what I see and hear in those conversations with victims, they oftentimes literally use the phrase, "I feel like I'm right back at the beginning." And that's an emotional response. They intellectually may know where we are and where we're going and be very, very prepared, but you're faced that soon after thinking you've got at least a little breather and having to kind of revisit everything about event, the impact. And then even if we can reassure them with help from the Department of Corrections or Board of Parole, that release is unlikely. We can't get in front of the parole board decision, but you can speculate sometimes. There's still the fear that it's on them, the victim, to come in and and give a testimony to ensure that that individual isn't released immediately. It becomes very emotionally charged and particularly protracted when we talk about the uh, death penalty, life without parole. I will retire before any of the four death penalty cases I've worked on are completed. We have two individuals on our death row today who've been there over 40 years. Every time I look at that statistic, what I think of is the families who, for the past 40 years, we're talking intergenerational parts of that family left to carry. They're committed to seeing it through, and it comes with very, very high cost.
0: The criminal justice system is very difficult for victims to maneuver through. That's why victim witness coordinators are so important To help hold the hands of those victims as they go through the process. Well, we've talked a lot about sentencing today, and I wonder if there's anything that we have left out from either of your perspectives.
2: Just want to speak more about the post-conviction proceeding as well. Going back to these cases not ending, so of course after the conviction, then you've got the appeal to the Tennessee uh, Court of Criminal Appeals and Tennessee Supreme Court, and then after that, then you've got your post-conviction petition, and again, you can those uh, then you've also got your riericom nobis and then you've got your habeas and then you've also got your federal appeals and so again just want to piggyback off of what Patty says is, is that these victims they are dealing with not only parole uh, revocation hearings but they're still dealing with post-trial
0: proceedings and so they do uh, they do have to endure a lot. Certainly true. okay well thank you very much for being here today, TK. Thank you. and thank you very much Patty. Thank you. I think our listeners have learned a lot about sentencing here in Tennessee. During this episode, we've talked quite a bit about victims' experiences in the criminal justice system. However, as stated in other generally speaking episodes, the district attorney's office represents the state of Tennessee in criminal cases. This means that our job is to uphold the law and hold offenders accountable to the law. Public safety requires community input and involvement. Sentencing plays an important role in our community safety. Please keep your legislators informed about what is important to you when it comes to keeping our community safe, and please inform them why truth in sentencing is vitally important. We'll be switching things up a bit for our final episode of Season 2. I will sit down with my community affairs director to talk about ways my office pulls back the perceived curtain in order to connect the community and promote public safety.